With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Diana DePasquale, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Hide Hirota, author of Expelling the Poor, Atlantic Seaboard States and the 19th Century Origins of American Immigration Policy. Hide Hirota is an assistant professor in the Institute for Advanced Study at Waseda University in Tokyo, Japan. Prior to his current position, he was a Mellon Research Fellow in the Society of Fellows in the Humanities at Columbia University. He also taught at the City University of New York City College. Dr. Hirota's book, Expelling the Poor, has received awards from the Immigration and Ethnic History Society, the New England American Studies Association, and the American Conference for Irish Studies. And Dr. Hirota's book also received a special commendation for the Massachusetts Historical Society Book Prize. Dr. Hirota, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thank you. Thanks for having me, um, Diana. I'm very happy to speak to you today about your book. So I'd like to jump right in and start talking about your research uh, in the book, which focuses on state policies of immigration control, specifically in New York and Massachusetts. But you argue that those laws come to act as a framework for subsequent federal policy as well. Can you uh, speak speak to me more about that? Of course. Yes, sure. Um, so my book explores the origins of American immigration policy. And scholars of American immigration you know, tend to assume that Immigration to the U.S. was largely from uh, free from regulation until the 1880s when the federal government passed a series of Chinese exclusion laws. My book challenges uh, this assumption by demonstrating how immigration control was actively conducted at the local and state levels on the East Coast, especially in New York and Massachusetts prior to the 1880s, and how these state laws eventually um, laid the foundations for um, U.S. immigration laws. So the story of American immigration control um, kind of started in the, uh, the mid-19th century. You know, in the first half of the 19th century, America's northeastern states, especially uh, New York and Massachusetts, received a growing influx of destitute, impoverished Catholic immigrants from Ireland, mainly due to the potato famine in, in Ireland. And many of these poor Irish immigrants entered public charitable institutions like arms houses as paupers after their landing in the U.S. 
and the feeling that the Irish foreigners were occupying these public institutions and consuming public welfare funds supported by Americans' taxes infuriated Americans. And the, um, as a result, anti-Irish nativism um, became very strong in these states. And this anti-Irish sentiment led to calls for immigration regulation against the Irish poor. And ultimately, state legislatures in New York and Massachusetts developed a series of laws for prohibiting the landing of destitute foreigners and deporting those already in the U.S. back to Europe, Canada, and other U.S. states. And it's throughout the antebellum civil war and reconstruction periods, these states kind of implemented uh, the state-level immigration control against the foreign-born poor, especially the Irish. Now, in the mid-1970s, 1870s, the U.S. Supreme Court declared state passenger passenger laws unconstitutional for infringing upon federal power over foreign commerce. And this put into a panic New York and Massachusetts officials who feared that this decision would ruin the immigration control that they had been exercising for for decades. So in order to continue the immigration control against the poor, especially the uh, Irish poor, the state officials started a campaign for the introduction of federal immigration legislation that would nationalize the state immigration policy against against the foreign-born poor. The result was the Federal Immigration Act of 1882, passed three months after the introduction of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, this law prohibited the landing of paupers and those with mental illness, as well as criminals. And this is the first general federal immigration legislation that applied to all non-Chinese immigrants. And the provisions of this law um, were modeled on the existing state laws in New York and Massachusetts and devised by officials in these states. And this law, the Immigration Act of 1882, would serve as a basis of the subsequent national general immigration laws. And I'd like to add finally here that the state law and this uh, federal law, Immigration Act of 1882, even affected uh, federal Chinese exclusion. When Congress debated the draft of the Chinese Exclusion Act, opponents of Chinese immigration constantly referred to eastern states' immigration laws and the ongoing debate for the general legislation, saying that, you know, since the uh, foreign-born poor had long been excluded and now this immigration control was becoming a national policy, Chinese should be excluded likewise. So in other words, uh, the state-level immigration control against the poor kind of provided rationale for uh, federal Chinese exclusion. So for these reasons, my book demonstrates how... um, New York and Massachusetts laws set the groundwork for federal immigration policy, and and it argues that the origins of American immigration control lay in cultural prejudice prejudice against Irish and, more fundamentally, um, economic concerns about their poverty. So there's a there's a few. Oh. There's a few things I want to uh, catch up with you there. First of all, uh, as an American studies scholar, it's it's up until this point, up until your research, it has been uh, most scholars of American studies usually point to the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act as the sort of jumping off point for 
the legislation of immigration, the sort of policing of immigrants and always use that one as an example. So for you to uncover uh, that there were even decades before that there was a pattern or a strategy um, uh, based not only in race, but also in class, race because Irish were denied whiteness, um, that's interesting. And it also is very, it's an important development in American studies scholarship because that has not been uh, examined before. And then the second thing that you say that is very uh, interesting as well is it's it's incredibly hard not to think of contemporary sort of parallels in terms of immigration. And quite often I hear um, uh, not mostly not from scholars, but it's very common to hear um, that uh, suddenly our immigration policies have taken a turn. But your research reveals that it was sort of grounded in these racist and sort of exclusionary practices and policies. Right. Uh, I, 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 this must be why your book has caused such a stir and garnered such awards and, and acclaim because it is quite, uh, different from the research that has gone before it. And, uh, decades before people have not examined as closely as you have and in depth as you have the, the practices that were, uh, in place or started to be put in place, uh, for the Irish immigrants in New York and, and Massachusetts. Thank you. No problem. It's also uh, very challenging not to mention the nativist movement that was that was you know very popular in the mid mid nineteenth century, uh, and especially in light of our current political moment. Um, you know, as we speak, our government is shut down. It's hard not to even just sort of mention that as a to provide context for an issue that we're talking about um, uh, several hundred years ago. How do you see? your research informing our current conversations about immigration, uh, especially about refugees fleeing Central America, specifically Honduras or Guatemala, other countries, and the racial identities of the refugees who are seeking asylum in the U.S. Right. Uh, there is much structural similarity between uh, the Irish nativism in the 1850s and the current nativism um, against the undocumented immigrants and, as you said, uh, refugees from Central America. You know, first of all, like just like today, um, the idea that immigrants were moral, economic, and public health threats to America was really central to anti-Irish sentiment in the 19th century. So you see direct continuity along this line. You know, Catholic immigrants from, from Ireland were considered cultural and public political threats to Protestant America, but also the poverty of the Irish was, was seen as an economic and public health threats. And again, just like today, nativists back then discussed as if all the Irish immigrants were extremely poor and dependent on relief, and nativists used language that exaggerated the extent of un- undesirable immigration, such as masses and hordes of paupers invading America. Right. You know, these kinds of, you know, phrases uh, were really, you know, ubiquitous, right? And right. The, the familiar charge against the undocumented immigrants today um, that they would steal jobs from Americans uh, by working for extremely low wages was, was also part of the main argument against the Irish in the 19th century. Nativists uh, called Irish immigrants labor, labor, 
saying that Americans couldn't compete with popular labor, and the the end result of this competition would be that Americans would lose their jobs and couldn't support their families, descending themselves into the level of foreign paupers. So, so the idea that immigrants are invaders and exercise the notion of police power that every community has a right to protect itself from external threats, I think stand at the core of natives in and now. And at the same time, to me, the fundamentally important legacy of, of 19th century nativism for today is, is this idea that anything could be done against undesirable foreigners. So, you, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the Know Nothing movement of the 1850s, and that's a, uh, one of the highlights uh, of, of my book. But, um, you know, during the Know Nothing movement, um, which was the most aggressive and native, aggressive nativist movement in, in, in America before the Civil War, Deportation enforcement in Massachusetts became very radical, provoking even unauthorized removals, such as the overseas deportation of native-born and naturalized U.S. citizens of Irish descent. And and this kind of action was really rooted in um, state officials' conviction, combined with the generally low status of the poor then, that uh, the officials and the government could do anything with undesirable foreigners and their family. And, and these people didn't have such such things as rights and protections in, in the U.S. And I think these ideas are at the core of the present policy for, you know, um, refugees and undocumented immigrants. You know, of course, these, these ideas became solidified through Chinese exclusion and later federal immigration control uh, for the rest of the 19th century and throughout the 20th century. But I think we can see uh, their roots in state-level immigration control in the Northeast in, in the mid-19th century. Yes, and to follow up on something you said about, um, you describe in the book this sort of disregard for the basic rights of these people as they were uh, being discriminated against and then subsequently deported. I had yeah. a couple of questions about clarifying how did states actually determine who who qualified as a pauper? What what made up pauper status? Um, yes. So from deportation laws standpoint, I mean, for for the policy's sake, the definition was kind of clear. That is, a pauper meant somebody lacking self-sufficiency, such as an inmate in a charitable institution like army cells. So as long as people earned wages and support themselves however poor they were and how, however low their income was, they were not paupers and, in principle, not subject to deportation. So the state deportation law um, basically only applied to those who were accommodated at charitable institutions and, and dependent on public poor relief. So that's the kind of definition of um, pauper in, in, under the state immigration law. And as a result, they could be framed as a, a drain on the state, as someone who uh, was an economic threat. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the purpose of, of um, the, the deportation law, among others, is to, is to um, reduce the expense uh, of supporting the foreign-born poor. So my my next question is, you you describe um, the the wave of immigration that came over from Ireland mostly as a result of the great the the great famine. Uh, would you would you say that they're the people who emigrated from Ireland to the U.S. in the mid nineteenth century 
are comparable to the refugees we see fleeing from economic and political oppression today from Central America? Are they is it there is an is there an equivalency? Um, I think the answer is yes and no. Uh, the paupers and the Irish immigrants were refugees in in a sense that um, they escaped from economic political oppression in their homeland and their government, the British government, failed to protect themselves and finally uh, returning home in in famine strike in Ireland under British colonial rule could threaten their lives. So in in these senses, the Irish uh, could be uh, considered refugees. But but at the same time, the very category of refugee is, is uh, you know it's a it's a relatively new one in the history of American right. immigration law, and there was no such category back in the mid nineteenth century. Um, and it, one interesting thing to note here is, is that the Irish immigrants themselves rarely use the term refugee, and a much more common self identification back then was that they were exiles. Okay. So, so rather than refugees, you know, exiles um, became a kind of common way to describe describe themselves. And the notion that the Irish were exiles was uh, long it was long adapted by Irish immigrants and Irish Americans for for generations in the U.S. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, jumping off from there, I'd like to sort of pivot to um, the way you describe how older immigrants, ones that had worked years and had been productive here in the U.S., how they were deported back to Ireland, and in some cases, Great Britain, um, because they had developed illnesses such as dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, this cr- this cruelty that you described and the cruelty that... Um, you uh, you provide as evidence in, in your book that's described in the Boston Pilot, uh, a paper from the time. Did you find any further evidence of either an acknowledgement or even an awareness by U.S. politicians or bureaucrats of how these policies harmed the Irish immigrants who came here and then were sent back? Um, generally speaking, that's an important question, by the way. Um, generally speaking, American officials were unaware of and, and simply didn't pay attention to, to mm. the, the welfare of deportees or the fate of deportees. Um, the manner of deportation was pretty harsh. You know, as you said, you know, deportees include, included included the um, elderly people, um, those in their 70s, and also deportees included uh, those with mental illness. And mentally ill people in particular 
didn't receive any care during the process of deportation. And once arriving in Liverpool or Irish port cities, you know, American officials simply dumped them on the street mm. without giving them uh, basic provisions for immediate self-support, such as money, food, and clothes. So the um, U.S. officials were largely operating under the priority of eliminating immigrant paupers from America as as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And they, they were really indifferent to, to the welfare and the fate of deportees. And the consequence of these practices uh, was that deportees, especially those with mental illness, roamed around the street in, in Britain and Ireland, and many of them ended up entering local poor houses. So if the paupers didn't have rights in the U.S., they remained so the right place pretty much uh, throughout the deportation process. And, you know, American nativists complained that the British government was using the U.S. as sort of dumping ground for the British Empire's surplus population, that is, the poor Irish. But then I would say that Americans responded uh, to, to, to this kind of Im- immigration by literally dumping that back the Irish migrants on the streets in, in Britain and Ireland. So overall, uh, the de- deportation policy and its implementation um, was pretty uh, brutal. Yeah, uh, uh, that's putting it mildly. One of the things that, that is so striking about your book are the sort of case studies that you provide of the people who are dumped quite often in places where they have no support system, they have no resources, uh, they are completely on their own. Uh, is there one or two examples that stand out to you that are um, particularly particularly uh, good examples, or I shouldn't say good examples, but really striking examples of the ways that this th- that these stories ended for the immigrants who were sent back to Ireland and England? Right. Um, it's kind of hard to identify a particular case, but I think um, it's it's more. It- I think it's it's worthwhile to provide uh, general patterns with some you know particular episodes here. So, um, so the, after being deported from the U.S., um, many of the um, paupers, the deportees, were first sent to Liverpool, and then you know many of them entered Liverpool workhouse, the local workhouse in Liverpool, and then as as you kind of um, mentioned earlier, these people were further deported to Ireland under the British Poor Law, which allowed for the removal of Irish paupers uh, in Britain to Ireland. And then finally, you know, once they came kind of back to Ireland after the, um, you know, two deportations, these Irish migrants were, deportees were kind of marginalized in a sense that the local officers um Kind of refused to accommodate them, and they they even considered reshipping uh, the these deportees back to the U.S. So the um yeah you know if I if I can provide one particular case you know, um so the officers in Cork, uh, Western Ireland, in 1860s uh, found you know a group of Irish women uh, with mental illness roaming around um, on the street of Cork, and. The officers uh, called the, these Irish women Irish-American lunatics. 
and um, they complain that uh, you know they 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 didn't want to accommodate these Irish American lunatics uh, because uh, you know they no longer belong to Ireland. Mm-hmm. So, what's I think important important uh, in terms of analysis here is that. Uh, American deportation policy is not simply uh, a product of domestic anti-immigrant sentiment, but it kind of unfolded in transnational ways uh, that connected with, you know, um, that that connected U.S. and Britain, Ireland. You know, uh, the the Irish deportees were, you know, um, expelled from the U.S. and Britain, and finally they were marginalized, alienated in Ireland. So what we see here is, is a kind of transnational displacement of the Irish migrant poor. You know, they they, they didn't belong to belong anywhere in right. In, right? So um, it, so so the story is kind of tragic in this sense. It's very tragic. I. One of the things that is also um, noteworthy is the way that you describe the transient poor, and we've already talked about the ways that uh, these Irish immigrants were seen as economic threats. Um, Some of what you write reminds me of Nancy Eisenberg's 2017 book, White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America, and the ways in which we connect ideas about productivity, usefulness, worth, value, um, with property ownership and land use, um, uh, and how if if immigrants uh, aren't using the land, they are they're a waste basically. They're disposable, and the the idea of people being disposable leads me to your argument about neoliberalism in the book. Can you speak more about that? Yes. Um. So. One thing that I want to uh, underscore here is, is that the deep cultural presence against the Irish um, played a very important role in, in the development of anti-poor deportation laws. But but I think we need to place these laws uh, in the context of economic ideology in the nineteenth century in nineteenth century America and. It, before the Civil War, you know the the social and legal status of the poor substantially declined, and and the idea that, except rare cases, poor people who entered arms houses and received relief were lazy, undeserving people, um, became widely accepted in, in American society, and the dominant thinking of of this period, you know, uh, pre Civil War America was that. The ideal Americans should earn their bread and advance themselves through their own labor. In other words, economic self-sufficiency was the kind of key quality for ideal American citizens, especially white people in the North. You know, in, in principle, unlike the South, where slavery prevented African Americans in bondage from achieving self-sufficiency, whites in the North had no obstacle. So, so under these circumstances, it was supposed. If white people became incapable of supporting themselves, that should be simply due to personal moral failing and laziness and the lack of uh, proper work ethic. In, in other words, um, paupers, especially white paupers, were kind of failed people in, in free labor America. And this ideology, I would say, led to the general criminalization of the poor back then. And then uh, state immigration policy served as the kind of vanguard of this ideology by physically removing from the nation. 
the, the foreign-born poor, especially the Irish, who are uh, considered undeserving of membership in, in America. So I think um, we have to really understand um, uh, the, the, the story of over deportation policy uh, within the framework of uh, broader economic thinkings uh, in, in America back then. There are so many entry points into your research. We already mentioned sort of transnational policies. Uh, There's clearly there are entry points into empire, uh, race, class. There are so many ways uh, to think about your research and how it um, it can sort of be a jumping off point for so many things, both uh, the history of immigration and also sort of moving forward what we do. Um, what are you currently working on in terms of you know current book projects or current research? Right. So I am currently working on my second book project, uh, which is about uh, foreign contract labor. The, the, I'm, I'm exploring the significance of contract labor for the history of American immigration policy. Um, contract labor migration is essentially kind of guest worker migration. That is the uh, immigration of um, foreign workers under prearranged um, labor contract uh, by the with the American employers, and uh, I am ex- uh, examining the how the uh, contract labor migration was regulated under federal immigration policy between the 1880s and the 1920s, and 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 this migration, this this theme, I'm exploring the. The significance or impl- implication of this regulation for the broader history of um, American immigration policy, and one of my major points here in this project is, is that um, um, foreign contract labor, the concerns about foreign contract labor in the late late nineteenth century, um, really helped um, immigration control uh, become a national affair. So. What I mean by here is that, you know, uh, American studies scholars tend to think that um, the introduction of first uh, federal immigration laws like Chinese Exclusion Act and the the Immigration Act of 1882 made immigration control a kind of national affair. And um, my point here is that um, anti-Chinese sentiment and the anti-foreign-born poor sentiment these were, you know, actually quite confined to coastal states like um, uh, New York, Massachusetts, and California, or some border states. So, in this sense, immigration control in the early 1880s um, uh, was only a kind of regional affair uh, involving coastal states. Now, what we see um, over contract labor um, during the 1880s and 90s is that. Um, even the interior states, like Americans in interior states, like Colorado, you know, um, Nebraska, Iowa, or Dakotas, these you know Americans in interior states uh, began to advocate immigration control um, in response to the importation of foreign contract laborers. So, um, my book argues or traces how um, immigration control uh, became transformed from a regional, re- you know, relatively regional affair in coastal states to an issue of national significance, uh, advocated not only by interior, uh, not only by the coastal and border states, but also by interior states. So there is um, um, 
you know, kind of intellectual continuity here from my first book and to, to, to my second work. My first book examined the origins of uh, U.S. immigration policy, and then the second book was about the nationalization of uh, immigration control. And then, just for clarification, about how long of a time period are we talking between when uh, coastal states where there were ports of entry like Massachusetts and New York started advocating heavily and sort of, you know, enforcing immigration? How long before it then makes it more towards, uh, you said, the Dakotas, Colorado? How long of a time frame? Um, it's, I'm talking about the... Uh, Pretty much two decades, two or three decades, you know, uh, the final decades of the 19th century. Um, up to 1880s, immigration control remained relatively coastal affair. And like, as I said, yeah, New York, Massachusetts, California. But then uh, over the course of the 1880s, 90s, and early uh, 1910s, the, the first decade of the 20th century, uh, interior states actively kind of, you know, jumped into the conversation of immigration control um, over the issues of labor importation. So, um so the kind of turn of, turn of the 20th century is is the kind of prime um, uh, focus in my new work. Okay. Well, I would like to thank you so much for coming on and talking about your research. It is absolutely so remarkable and such a contribution to the field of American Studies scholarship, specifically immigration, ethnic studies, uh, for critical race theorists, for uh, history uh, history scholars. And I would just like to thank you once again for coming on. Um Thanks for listening to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Dr. Hide Hirota, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.